Welcome to Northridge Church Podcast. Thank you for tuning in today. For more information, visit us online at northridgethomaston.com. Now prepare your heart as we dive into God's Word. My interest uh, in this sermon or any of them that I may preach to uh, wow you with any quoting of Scripture or any knowledge or historical content, but rather to simply divulge what God has already said, but then give you a a package, if you will, an application that allows you to take it out and live it out in your faith. Because I feel like a lot of times I've heard over the years, I mean, many, many years of just listening to preaching and what have you, that there's a lot of informational type sermons and those are good. They're teaching moments, but I think you just need to make certain that you're giving them something to take out and to live out in their faith. How many of you know what I'm talking about? So we're going to do that today. Uh, in the context of this parable that is quite interesting, even in its title, it is the parable of the 10 virgins. And it's found in Matthew chapter 25. And you know, if you've been a student of God's word any amount of time, that you have to understand context before you can really read it for its intention. So Matthew 24 really starts this discourse called the Olivet Discourse. It's where Jesus is standing on the Mount of Olives and he's giving this sermon and he's dealing with two groups of people. So if you're Understand scripture, this makes a lot more sense that way. First, in 24, he's dealing with the Jewish people. Remember, that's God's bride. That's God's people. When I say God, I'm talking about Elohim, creator God. And then chapter 25 is dealing with specifically the bride of Christ, which is you and I, the church, those of us who have been born again, accepted Christ as the savior of our life. We are termed the bride of Christ. And he is the groomsman or the bridegroom. And and the reason he uses that, again, is somewhat of a metaphor to help us understand what he's doing and what he's going to do, what our relationship looks like in America or in our culture. uh, We we get engaged. That's not the way it works in the Middle East. It's still that way. They get betrothed. They get promised. And it's contractual. It's as contractual as the marriage itself. So Jesus being the bridegroom, the one who has offered himself, he's bended a knee, if you will, and he said, will you marry me to his church? And I'm talking about the church globally. Anybody who says yes to him, the Bible says, to as many as received him, or that invitation of marriage, he said, I gave them the power to become a son of God, even to those who have believed upon his name. And I I tell you this because if you've never heard this before, the whole part of this is not going to make sense. In the Hebrew culture, unlike our culture here today, we just simply walk up and say, hey, will you marry me? Here's the ring. The ring is a promise. And then we have a date. We get marriage. And then we have a honeymoon and we consummate the marriage through intimacy. Well, the Hebrew culture is a lot different than that. There's, a, there's an invitation. The, the groom's, uh, groom-to-be would go with his father to the bride's house and say, hey, my son wants your daughter. What's the cost? You just hope you're not that girl that's only worth like one goat, Right? That would not be a good talk in the town. But like he may say, you're worth like 30 sheep and you're worth, you know, this many lambs, this many, you know, horses, what have you. And it's called a dowry. There's a price that's staked for her marriage, for her hand. Why? Because that, that guy, the, the bride's daddy, he's losing a hand. He's losing a cook. He's losing a person around the house, whatever it may be. And that's why in our culture, that, that bride, she drops her name and she takes on the husband's name. Same picture. But otherwise, what happens then is the groom goes back to the dad's property and he begins to prepare a place, the living quarters. And that may take a month, it may take a year, it's determined by the father. And the father said, okay, the house is ready. I want you to go get your bride, bring her home and let's have the marriage uh, feast. It lasts seven days, okay? So you think your wedding was expensive, seven days. 
in which case there's a big supper every day. There's something uniquely different. And of course, the first night of it, they consummate it through intimacy. But what's different is, is when the father says, okay, go get your bride. He doesn't go all the way back to the bride's father's house. What he does is he goes about a third of the way. He points himself in that direction. He steps out and then he sends a servant to go get the bride. He comes back and he says, okay, the groom's ready. Let me take you. And then a bunch of people go in procession holding torches and they will actually walk back. When they go back, he'll meet them there and then so shall she ever be with them. John chapter 14 verses one through six gives us a picture of this. Jesus talking. He said, let not your hearts be troubled. You believe in God, believe also in me. In my father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. He said, I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go to prepare a place for you, watch this, I will come again and receive you to myself that where I am, you may be also. And then of course, verse six, you know, or five, I should say, uh, Thomas says, how do we know the way? They didn't know what he was talking about. He said, I'm the way. I'm the truth and the life and no man comes to the father but by me. Now let's jump over to this prophetic aspect of apocalypse. You know that word even in the secular but apocalypse literally means unveiling or revelation. And in our context, the book of Revelation is literally the unveiling of Jesus Christ, the bridegroom. And we do know according to uh, prophecy, according to everything that's gone on in the Bible, as well as everything that's gone on in real time in this world, that there were over 300 prophecies that were spoken by the prophets who lived 1,500 years before Jesus and said, this is gonna happen even down to the very town in which he would walk into in Bethlehem by Micah the prophet. The very fact of Isaiah said he would, be, he would, he would bear my stripes and, and by stripes I'm healed. And, and every other, Jeremiah uh, talks about it. All the other prophets, 300 prophecies that Jesus fulfilled to the T. There was a study done, an algorithm that was ran and said for him to, for one person, Jesus Christ, historically, real person, to fulfill 300 uh, prophecies would be like you winning the lottery over 465 billion times. It's not even possible. And yet he did it. He did it in real time. Historically, he did it. If we look at the clock of it, in 1948, in the month of May, when Israel became a nation, first time in several thousand years, according to prophecy, there would be a clock that would begin. And it says, this generation will not pass until they see the coming of the Son of Man. Say, so what do you mean the coming? That don't make any sense. We've made it really frightening, really scary. But it's really the bridegroom coming for his bride. He's gone to prepare a place for us. Remember, he came here. He, he, he looked and said, what's the price for this bride, the church? His father said, okay, the price is your life. And he died on a cross. He became my sin and your sin that she would be presented to him without blemish, you and I, without spot, without sin. So when we talk about second coming, uh, movies, Hollywood has made it really kind of the spectacle of it to where it's something that we should either fear or quite frankly, if I can just be very honest, something we should laugh at. It's laughable. Christianity has become laughable in the world. I get it. And, and quite honestly, you and I have not done a great service to that end. We, we become laughable because oftentimes, again, say it out loud, we all do it, me included, that oftentimes we live out our faith in this room and then we go out there and we live like the world and people are like, you're no different than me. So they don't buy into the story. So we become somewhat of a paradox, somewhat of a punchline to lots of jokes. And you know, that's true. We all do. But having said that, there's this, there's this moment that is going to take place. The start of 1948 and 1967, the six days war was, was part of that culmination too. When this one little tiny 
tiny place called Israel defeated these, all these uh, Arabian uh, countries in six days. They had less than one-tenth of the armament, one-one-hundredth of the personnel, and yet it's God's chosen people. God chose the Jews. We don't know why. We don't understand all that, but it's his people. And that's why when you read this book, you have to understand it's written by Jews, about Jews, for Jews, with Jewish culture and intention at heart. So if you don't understand that, you're not going to understand a lot of the allegory that, that he's talking. Same true for this text. And I started this last week and then God gave me something uh, about Wednesday or Thursday of, of this past week that I've never seen before. Never seen it in, in all the times I preached this. So I, I hope that God opens your heart to something kind of unique. But I want to go ahead and tell you, and I told the first service this, uh, you, you're not going to like some of what I'm going to say. So go ahead and look to your neighbor and say, be sweet. Go ahead and tell them. Now, this is not a, a brow beating of hellfire, brimstone kind of thing when I say that. I'm talking about it, it's going to put some of the urgency in what it is we're doing or what it is we're not doing. And you have to understand there is a laboring. There is a part of this that, that you and I have to own. And if we don't, there's some ramifications. Let me, let me explain. In Matthew chapter 25, he's really speaking to two groups of people within the church. And this even hurts me to say this. But there are that group of church members who are right with God, who are endued with the Holy Spirit. They're the bride of Christ. They already have heaven for a home. He says, we're already seated in heavenly places. He said, your name's been written in the Lamb's book of life, Jesus being the Lamb of God. And it's written with his precious blood, again, metaphorically, inclining us to understand that that book, is their name written down, it cannot be erased. So heaven is secure. So the question is not, am I saved or am I lost? For me, I can't speak for anyone else. But what will I do with the salvation that I have as I live it out in this life? And so he gives us these, these 10 virgins, five of which are wise. That would be the, the ones that are wise are endued with the Holy Spirit. They're saved, they're secure, it's settled. And then there's five foolish virgins who are also a part of the church. And I'm going to show you that. But they're not saved. They're not right. But they look a lot like those who are. They look, act a lot like those who are and even hang out with those who are. There's something missing. Let me, let me read it to you. You'll understand. And I'm going to give you a couple of quick applications. Verse uh, 1 through 10, Matthew 25. He says, that, then the kingdom of heaven shall be likened. He gives us a simile. He's given us a comparison. It should be like 10 virgins who took their lamps and went out to meet the bridegroom. Bridegroom is Jesus. So now we're seeing that this is that manifestation of him coming back, his servant going and saying, okay, hey, come. They turn, they light their torches and they head out in the processional. And the lamp, of course, metaphorically, is the word of God. Psalm chapter 119, verse 105 says, the lamp, I mean, the, the word is a lamp into my feet, a light into my path. So it's saying, how am I, as a child of God, going to effectuate the use of the word of God? It's, a, it's my promise. It, it's what I use to live out my life. It shows me how to be a husband. Love my wife as Christ loved the church. How did he love me? He loved me when I was unlovable. He died for me, right? Come on, ladies, say amen right there, right? And how do I raise kids in the nurture and admonition of the Lord? Bring them up that way. Pray with them. Teach them. How do, how do, I, how do I show my generosity? God said a tenth is, is holy. That's not yours. It's God's. You know, do with it what you will. You can argue it all you want to. It's just God's. And there's a the principle behind being generous to people, et cetera, et cetera. Then he says, now there were five of them that were wise and five that were foolish. Those who were foolish, look what happened. They took their lamps they have knowledge of the word. They have semblance of it, but they took no oil with them. The oil is indicative of the Holy Spirit. Always, always, always. I told you last week where even Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane, he's in a place of the Mount of Olives, a place where there are a bunch of olive trees. I've been there. I've, I've actually stood in that place. 
And Jesus went in there. Actually, Gethsemane, the Garden of Gethsemane, means place of crushing. As Jesus went in there and he wept and he said, Father, if it be your will, let this cup pass from me. But nevertheless, not my will, but your will be done. As he was crushed, he became the sins of mankind. And the oil is what he released. He sent the Holy Spirit in Acts chapter 2 on the day of Pentecost. So it's, it's all symbolic and you can see it play out. But he said this. He says, but the wise took their vessel with their lamps. Verse 5. But while the bridegroom was delayed, they all slept and slumbered. And at midnight, a cry was heard. Behold, the bridegroom is coming. Let's go out to meet him. Then all of those virgins arose and they trimmed the lamp. So all was sleeping, even the wise. And they got up, they twim, trimmed the, uh, not twimmed, I don't know what that means. Trimmed their wicks. Boy, you gotta be careful with that one. That could get you in trouble. And prepared the lamp. And the foolish said to the wise, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. The literal translation there is our lamps have no light. But the wise answered saying, no, lest there should not be enough for us and for you but rather go to those who sell and buy it for yourselves. I just want you to know that verse 10 proves to us, shows us that a relationship with Jesus is something you have to do personally. You can't do it through me, can't do it through mom and dad, can't do it by being a good person. You can't even do it by hanging out with people and going to church. It's something personal that has to be done. Verse 10, watch this and I'll read on. And when they went to buy the bridegroom, Jesus came and those who were ready went in with him to the wedding and then the door was shut. Afterward, the other virgins came, the foolish ones, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he answered, and he said this, Assuredly, I say to you, I don't know you. I think the King James says, I never knew you. That phraseology of the word know means to have an intimate relationship. It doesn't speak of cognitive head knowledge. A lot of people can know Jesus. A lot of people can believe who he is. But it's not until you enter into a personal relationship that you become one with him. And then finally, here's our, here's our challenge. Here's where we live. This is, this is not Mark saying, this is what you need to do. This is, this is the word of God saying, this is what you have to do. He says, therefore, watch. That word literally means to be sober, be vigilant, be, be, be aware of the times in which you live. Be reminded in the book of Matthew that the disciples are saying, how will we know when the end of the day shall come? And he called them hypocrites. He looked at him, he said, look, you can tell when it's about to rain or when a storm's coming, especially up here on this mountain. You can see like forever away and you see the rain actually coming. You can even smell it in the air before it happens. And he says, you can do that to discern the weather. You can listen to what I'm saying and watch what's happening and discern the coming of the end of time. But you got to have your eyes open. You got to watch. And he said, watch therefore concerning the coming. So this is what it's talking about. He says, watch therefore concerning the coming of the Lord Jesus. Look what he says. He says, because he comes, what? He says, nobody knows the day nor the hour which the Son of Man shall come. So if we're wondering when he's coming, he's already made it clear. Again, we in the pastorate over the years, we have done a great disservice by trying to tell you, the church, when he's coming. When I was in high school, it was 1984. He's coming. God wrote a book, 1984. I remember being f afraid. I remember we had we were talk to, talking about fallout shelters and and the, and the World War III and you know everything that was going to happen there. And and uh, then then other people said it's going to be in 1998 because that's 50 years from 1948 and a generation. We don't know. We just know that the generation that was living in 1948 they will not all have died before we see the coming of the Son of Man. Again, believe that or not, that's 
specifically explicit in scripture. But I don't know if it's today. I don't know if it's before I start talk, stop talking. I don't know if it's next week. I, I don't know. And since we don't know, we should be what? We should be ready. And that's, that's what he's saying. Watch, therefore. What does ready look like? That's really the question. Number one, I have oil in my lamp. I have the Holy Spirit living in me. It doesn't mean I'm perfect. I mean, none of us are that. We all fail. It just means I've been washed by the blood of Jesus. I've accepted Jesus as the Lord of my life. Whatever vernacular you want to use to explain that, it just means this. I was lost, but now I'm found. I had no hope, but now I have hope of glory. I was dead, and now I'm alive. And on and on and on. You call it whatever you will, but I'm going to tell you something. I've seen real people, real men who were really struggling, really living in the world, and broke down and cried and just simply said, Jesus, save me, and it was done. It's not complicated. But as I begin to read this, there's some things I notice and I want to lay them before you very quickly. First, it showed the wise and the foolish together. I submit to you that it's a picture of the church. There are a lot of people in the church that are not right with God. In the same token, there's a lot of people that live on the outside that, that may, you know, may at this moment, maybe they've been hurt by a church or what have you. Maybe they're in a place of falling away or, or backsliding. Luke 15 says they're still a child. They're still a son. They might just be in a weird place right now for whatever reason. So let's be careful not to assume that somebody in the church is right with God and somebody on the outside is not. I think that's a very dangerous concept. And since we don't know, we treat them all the same. We show them the love of Christ. And as we understand this, we realize that they're all waiting. All of them are anticipating the coming of the Lord. So they had knowledge of it. But there's five of them. Five of them are foolish. They do not have the oil. They do not have the Holy Spirit. So I kind of stopped right there last week. And I just want to jump into something that I think is very interesting that I want to give you that the Lord showed me. First of all, we've been talking about, for as long as I can remember, pastors have been talking about a one-world government. There's indication in Scripture that at some point when, when Jesus comes back for his bride, remind you, that's called the rapture. The word rapture itself is not in Scripture. It's, it's in the phrase caught up, which is uh, harpazo, which literally means to be uh, caught up together to be with him in the clouds. First Thessalonians chapter 4, verses 13 and following. And he says... The dead in Christ will be raised first, and then we which alive remain shall be caught up together to be with him in the clouds. Again, the picture, perfect picture of, of, the, of the wedding procession beginning. He steps out on the clouds. This is not the second coming. We know that because the second coming, he's going to step right back on the Mount of Olives where he left from. It, it, when he ascended on the 50th, when he ascended to heaven, the angels would stand there and say, why do you men stand here looking, gazing up? In the same way, in the manner in which you see him going, he's coming back. He's coming to the same place. He's going to step on the Mount of Olives. It's going to split open. He's going to walk down the mountain into the Kidron Valley and into the Eastern Gate and into the temple. And everyone will know he is God and there's none other. But see, before that happens, there's going to be that, that, that bride festivities. We're going to come home with him. We're going to be with him for those seven years. While this time called the tribulation is unfolding here upon the earth. The tribulation is broken into two parts. The tribulation, the first part of it is three and a half years. Second part is three and a half years known as the great tribulation. At that midpoint, Daniel prophesied that this person, this son of perdition, the son of destruction, the antichrist, would step into the temple of God and declare himself God. When that happens, all hell is going to break loose. 
And, and so what we're awaiting in prophetic teaching, all we're waiting for, the next event that's going to happen is the rapture of the church. We don't know when it's going to happen, but we know it's coming. So when we begin looking at this, we say, okay, well, what should we be doing in the interim? We should have our lamp. We should be living out the word of God and do with the oil so that we're able to light our lamp. In, in, in Matthew's gospel, chapter five, in Luke's gospel, chapter four, no, Mark's gospel, chapter four, in Luke, chapter eight, is another story of, of a lamp, the parable of lamp, in which case he says this, who among you would light a lamp and put it under a bushel? See, see, lamps are meant to expel light and to, to break apart darkness. If you light a match, it breaks apart darkness. It doesn't make any sense to light a match and then cover it. Why? It's gonna, number one, it's going to quench it. It's going to cut it off. He said it doesn't make any sense. What should be happening is you should take that lamp, that candlestick, that torch, and put it on a, a hill so that everyone can see. See, I'm not the source of the light. Jesus is the source of the light. He's the oil, the Holy Spirit. All I am and all you are is a torch bearer. I'm just telling people about him. Now, does that mean I go around and I browbeat people and tell them, you better get saved, you're going to hell? I mean, they, they, that's not really what we're talking about. Shining a light is how you live out your faith. It's how you live out the word of God. Treat people with kindness. Even people that disagree with you, even people that vehemently disagree with you, even people who don't like you. He says, pray for your enemies. Well, that's a hard one. I know some of y'all are like going, Lord, bless them in Jesus' name. As they fall down the steps. You know, that's what you're thinking. But, but you pray for them. You want God to bless them. Why? Because, listen, and I want to get serious with this. I want you to hear me. I don't think there's anyone that really, really is okay with someone dying without Christ and spending eternity in hell. No one should be okay with that. And, and you go, well, what about the guy who doesn't even believe heaven and hell exist? Then that's your one. Everybody hold up one finger. That's the one person you need to be praying for. You need to be witnessing to. Don't beat them up. Don't, don't tell them all the things. Listen, if they're in the world and they're not in Christ, they're, they're living the way they should be expected to live. You have to show them Christ in you. But understand, God gives you and I the right to be a free moral agent. You have to do the same with him or her. You don't get to tell them what to do or how to do it. In fact, can I say this? Is it okay? Y'all wave your hand if I, if I can say it. I'm going to say it anyway. It's just, that's the problem with mandates as a whole. In the second paragraph of the Constitution, there is no right the government has to mandate anything in mind in your life. Guys, let me tell you something. They've even proven that in Roe versus Wade. Supreme Court upheld it, and it's been upheld and been upheld. And what's the language? Anybody, anybody know it? It's, it's her body, therefore it's her decision. You can't change that now and scratch that off and go, it's your body, it's my decision, get a shot. Now, before you think I'm saying anti-vaccine or vaccine, I'm not saying that. I've had dear friends, my mom, I mean, lots of family, everybody, we all agree to disagree, people in this room. I've had medical people look at me and say, Mark, I'm begging you, get a shot. And, and I'm not even going to tell you if I did, because that ain't what I'm talking about. But here's what I want you to know. I do not, however, think that it is the government's right to tell you what you have to do with your body. Now, why do I tell you that? Because the argument that I'm bringing out, it has nothing to do with the pandemic. What I am wanting you to understand is it's a very slippery slope that we're living on right now. Because if they can tell us to do that, then they can tell us to do this. And they can tell you how to raise your kid. They can tell you what church to go to. They can tell you what, what to preach. Let me tell you something. If they come in here and tell me I can't preach this, we're going to start a prison ministry. Some of y'all get that about four o'clock. Because I'm going to do what God's called me to do. And I'm going to raise my kids and, of course, now my grandkids. 
Have I told y'all how cool my grandkids are? They're amazing, y'all. They're a lot better than my kids. I'm just saying. But I say all that to say this. I want to show you something that I found this week. Y'all are familiar with the United Nations. Uh, We're a part of a lot of different things that they do. They're birthed out of the European Union. And I've always heard it said, Chris, that the Antichrist, based upon what we understand in Scripture, on, on places that he names, they named them in the New Testament. America's not named in, in the book of Revelation, by the way, probably because most of us are going to be out of here and the nation collapsed from the inside out. And there's other reasons, I think. We've certainly turned our back on the Lord. But, but the other thing I want you to understand is we believe that this person will rise up out of the sea. The sea is a crowd of people. He'll come up out of the European Union. There's, there's lots. And I'll teach, I'm teaching this on Wednesday night if y'all like to come kind of hear this play out. But the United Nations has uh, is, is, is opened up an agenda. It's called Our Common Agenda. And I've heard this as long as I've been in church. It's going to be a one world economy, one world government. Let me, let me show you this picture from the, the uh, front page of their website. And, and let me show you what I'm talking about. From the United Nations page, it says, no, you can do it that way. That's fine. It doesn't matter. Just throw it up. This is from their website. I got this this week. The Secretary General has released this entire report. Listen to what it says. Our common agenda report of the Secretary General, United Nations. Let me show you just the first page of that and let me show you what it says. Go to the second screen, if you will. There has been a shift towards digital payments during the COVID-19 pandemic. What that means is this, as is this exchange in currency, dollar bills and coinage, you've heard there's a coin shortage. Did you know that? If you give, if you get, I digress, be quiet. But listen, but the point is, is that exchanging this money can perhaps carry the virus and pass it from person to person. So the shift is because of the virus, number one. Look at number two. There's increasing attention to the development of central bank and digital currencies and stable coins. Their words, that's on their page. I've heard that my whole life. Why? Because the idea of a one world currency does away with the yen, does away with the ruble, does away with the euro, does away with the Deutschmark, does away with the dollar, does away with all of them. And guess why? Because this guy, the Antichrist, when he steps on the scene, he solves all of the world problems in the swipe of a pen. He does away with all the currencies in such a manner that this happens. No more sexual trafficking because now it's all digital. They can see where it's going. You say, Mark, I don't believe that's happening. I got a letter from my bank two weeks ago that says, hey, by the way, there's some indications through Congress that they're going to start to track the money you're putting in and the money you're taking out. I think they've adjusted it to where it's a $600 and above fee. Don't know if it's going to happen, but it's already in writing. It's already in movement because they want to control what you're doing. And that's, that's what the mandates do. But the bigger issue is that this person can offer up a a one world currency, this digital, and, and guess what? Black market, gone. Drugs, gone. Sexual trafficking, gone, all in a matter of a moment. And the technology is already in place for that to happen. And now they're telling us they want to see it effectuated on or before 2023. Now, throw up the last one. Let me show you this one. Also, governance. No, no, no. Throw up that uh, second screen on that second. Let me look at that last bullet point. The World Economic Forum. This is a different website. Their forum's digital currency governance consortium. That's the one world government. They want to pull it all under the United Nations is working to help realize the benefits 
and mitigate the risk of these new forms of digital currency. Now go to the next one and then, then I'm done. This is the World Economic Forum's webpage. Again, go there, page one. International cooperation and the era of digital currency growth. And down at the bottom, it says this. New digital currencies can foster financial inclusion. Isn't it great? They're just going to make us one big happy family. But here's the problem. All of that is absolutely indicative of what we've been talking about as long as I've been alive. But what are we doing? We've gotten cynical about the second coming. We've gotten cynical about the rapture of the church because we've heard it forever. We've heard pastors say, get ready, it's coming. And we get ready and nothing happens and we've now gone to sleep at the wheel. Guess what? It's the exact picture of what happened in Matthew 25. Even the wise ones filled with oil have gone to sleep. And why does that matter? Because you, you just said, Mark, I have heaven for a home. It doesn't matter if he comes, he goes, what have you. It does matter. Because it matters something that God showed me. There's five wise and there's five foolish. This is not in scripture. I've extrapolated this from it. Clearly God's teaching this. Why didn't the five wise, why didn't they before the bridegroom came, before they ever went to sleep, why didn't they look to the, uh, the foolish and say, hey, you might want to go get some oil. That's you and I telling the world, you might want to find Christ now. You might want to know Jesus today. Now, if they look at you and go, you're an idiot, let it roll. Keep loving them. Keep, keep praying for them. Maybe God can do something in his heart or her heart that you can't do. But you've got to initiate it because you're the mouthpiece. You're the hands and the feet of Jesus in this life. And what, what, what frightens me, and I say that loosely as, as the band comes back out, what, what I want you to hear today is that, that we have a responsibility. He says, Jesus said, the, 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 the fields are wide unto harvest now, but the laborers, the workers are few. See, that's the problem in the churches. We don't want to feel like we have any responsibility in the story. When in fact, all the responsibility to evangelize the world rests in mine and your lap. Now, let me tell you why I care about that and why you should care about it. 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, 13 and following talks about the rapture of the church. Have you ever wondered why Paul wrote two letters to Corinth, Corinthians, 1 Corinthians, why he wrote two letters to Thessalonica? It's because what he said in the first one, something became contrary or conflicting or they didn't understand it. So in 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, he writes this second letter because they're concerned that the day of the Lord had already happened. And that they were left behind, much like people in our culture today. Like, what's going on? Is he, are, are, have we already missed it? And so he deals with this issue. And, and as I read these issues, I want you to know they're not sequential, per se. They're not one behind the other. They're different things that are going to happen, starting with the rapture, starting with the Antichrist revealed, the three and a half years where the son of perdition, that man of destruction, the Antichrist, will step on the scene and will enter into the, uh, the temple at the three and a half year mark. It's called the abomination of desolation. It's spoken about in Daniel chapter nine, verse 27. It's spoken about again in the New Testament by Jesus in Matthew 25, 24. And, and here's, what, here's what happens. He goes through all these things to ensure them, to ensure them that they're not missing it. Here's what he says. Now, brothers and sisters, concerning the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ and our gathering together to him, we ask you, we ask you to not be soon shaken in mind or troubled either in spirit or by word or letter 
as if from us, Paul is saying, as though the day of Christ has already come. Let no man deceive you by any means for that day, capital D, the day of the Lord, that that day will not come unless there be a falling away first. And, and, and we believe that could actually not mean an apostasy or, or, or retracting of the faith, but it could. Or, watch this, that the man of sin is revealed, that's Antichrist, the son of perdition, son of destruction, who opposes all and exalts himself above all that is called God or that is worshipped so that he sits as God in the temple of God, showing himself that he is God. See, that's going to happen at three and a half years. So they're saying that hasn't happened. So surely you had not missed the rapture because all these things are going to be happening during that seven years. And then he says this. Do you not remember that when I was still with you that I told you these things? Paul was with Thessalonica for about three or four weeks. That's all he spent with them. And he told them these things. And then he wrote in a letter. And he said, verse seven, he said, for the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. There's a spirit of antichrist that's even alive down today. That's the world's economy. He says, and now you know whatever is restraining that he may be revealed in his own time. For the mystery of lawlessness is already at work. Only he who now restrains will do so until he is taken out of the way. Who is restraining the, the, the force of the Antichrist today? It's me and you, the spirit of God that lives in us. When we're taken out of the way, the Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit doesn't leave the earth, but the function of the Holy Spirit in us to evangelize the world is taken out of the way. Then the Antichrist can step on the scene. And then he goes on to say this. This is what I want you to hear. And then the lawlessness one, lawless one, will be revealed, whom the Lord will consume with the breath of his mouth and destroy with the brightness of his coming. That happens at the second coming at the battle of Armageddon. So again, not sequential. He's just showing us all these things will take place. Now listen to verse 9. The coming of the lawless one is according to the working of Satan with all power, signs, and lying wonders. False miracles. And with all unrighteous deception among those who perish or die, meaning die without Christ, they don't have the oil in their lamps. Because, here's why, because they did not receive the love of the truth, that, and they did not receive the love of the truth that they might be saved. And for this reason, because they didn't receive the love of the truth, Jesus Christ, God will send them strong delusion that they might believe the lie, that they may be condemned or damned because they did not believe the truth that had, but rather had pleasure in unrighteousness. What does that mean? If you're here today and anyone for that matter, watching or listening or just around the world that has heard the love of Christ preached, the free gift of eternal life for all have sinned and come short of the glory of God, Romans 3.23. Romans 5, 8, while you were yet a sinner, Christ committed his love to you. He died for you while you were sinning. Romans 6, 23, the wages of sin is death. That's what you deserve. That's what I deserve. Death meaning separation from God. But eternal life is given by a gift through Jesus Christ. And then Romans 10, 9, it says, if you believe in your heart and confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus Christ and believe that God has raised him from the dead, shall be saved. Romans 10, 13 says, whosoever should just call upon his name can be saved. If you've heard that and you have, I just told you. And you don't look at your life and go, man, there's got to be more than just living and dying and going into the ground. What if, because you, you accepted it faith. What if Jesus is real? Because even historically we can prove that. 
But what if he is God? What if he does want to save me? And what if I just call on him, even if I don't know it all? But then there's something in you that says, I ain't doing that. I'd rather have my own life because really, truly, all I do if I get saved, that means I got to quit doing this, 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 and this. To which I tell you, that's not true. That's a lie from the enemy. You let God sort that out. Remember when he went to the disciples by the Sea of Galilee, what did he tell them, Eric? Follow me and I'll make you fishers of men. He didn't tell them to clean up the fish. He didn't tell them they're going to be the bait. He just said, just be a fisher of men. It's not our job in the church to clean up people who are not right with God. That's the Holy Spirit's job. Our job is to love them and to pray for them and to display it through the living of our own faith. So what about us? Mark, are we going to have to go through the tribulation period? No, the Bible says in 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 9, it says, we've not been appointed under wrath, but under salvation. He's made a plan for us. So why does it matter? Why does it even matter? Because if I live out my faith and I don't tell people about Jesus, I don't tell them to put oil in their lamps, then their blood is on my hands. Say, Mark, can you prove that? I can. Ezekiel chapter 33. The prophet Ezekiel said this, or the Lord said this. He said, I have appointed you a watchman. I put you on the hill. And I've declared to you the coming of the Lord with a sword because he came as a lamb the first time. He's coming as a lion the second one to do war with those who haven't accepted him. And watch this. I'm to sound the trumpet. You're to sound the trumpet. Hey, he's coming. He said, if you sound the trumpet and they don't respond and prepare themselves, the blood is on their hands. It's between them and the Lord. And they will stand before God. Every knee will bow and every tongue will confess. Make no mistake about it. Everyone will stand before him. But he says, but if I make you the watchman and I put you on the wall and you don't sound the trumpet to tell them the Lord's coming and, and they perish, then their blood is on your hands. Boy, what a strong accusation against the church. But it's indicative even in Matthew 25 because the five wise didn't tell the other ones to get oil in their lamp. They just went to sleep. And that's what we're doing as a church. I don't mean Northridge. I'm talking about globally. I think we went to sleep at the wheel. And maybe you're sitting there today, Marcia, and you're saying, you know what, Mark? That's, that's great. You're a preacher. You know the scriptures. You feel confident in, in telling people because they ask questions. You can refer them. Let me tell you something. The, the only problem is that is destroyed by the blind man in the Gospels who was blind from birth. Jesus healed him, and they went to him and said, this Jesus is a fake. He's a fraud. He's a blasphemer. He's a magician. You know what he said? He didn't quote the Torah. He didn't quote scripture. He didn't try to pray with him. He said, hey, you know what? I don't know who Jesus is. He might be all those things, but one thing I'm sure of, I was blind, but now I see. You can tell people, hey, you know what? I don't know all the scriptures. We'll go talk to Mark. Maybe he knows a few of them. We'll go talk to somebody else. But one thing I know, I was in a mess and God has set me on a new rock. I was lost and God found me. I know God, I was in addiction and God has delivered me. I had no hope and now I have hope of glory. Listen, all of the things that you and I can experience to just stand on and tell somebody. The bigger issue is God didn't ask you to clean them up. He didn't ask you to have all the answers. He just asked you to be a fisher of men and to be a lover of people. So everybody in this room, hold up one finger. I'll look around and wait till everyone holds. Don't make me come down there. <laughs> hold it up. Hi. Everybody in this room has a responsibility to tell one person about Christ. And some of you already let your hand down and that's a picture of the church today. We're just like, he's such an idiot. I'm not hold up my one finger. Others of you are sitting there going, man, that kind of hurts my shoulder. It's going to cost you something to share Christ. Some of y'all putting it down going, 
Man, I can't wait I get to Peachtree. Listen, whatever it may be, God has put one person in your life. You know how you do it? You can put your hands down. You know how you do it? Maybe, maybe Marcia. How many of y'all like to go to Home Depot? How many of y'all? I love going to Home Depot. You know why? Because I get to see Marcia. And I don't know if y'all like me. When I'm doing a job, I go there 15 times in one day because I always forget a screw. But I get to hang out with Marcia. And I get to talk to Marcia about her family. And I, get, and I get to show her a little bit of the love of Christ, right? I get to show her that. I get to show her love of Christ. And that's how we do it. And we, and we explain and, and we show people. But listen, but if you're afraid to go just because you don't know enough, listen, that is a stinking cop out. Because people are going to die without Christ. You know it gets serious when the preacher gets in a chair. Everybody stand to your feet. Hold up one finger. Every person in this room can bring one person with you next week. Some of you brought people today. Praise God. And now it's God's business to sort it out. But if you're willing to bring one person or share your faith with one person the next, this next week, you say, Mark, you're trying to do that for a high attendance Sunday. I'm trying to fill empty seats with people who need to hear about Jesus. So here's what I want you to do. I don't know how y'all clapping. You got one finger in the air. <laughs> I'm just If you're willing, all eyes on you, peer pressure at its best. If you're willing to bring one person with you to church and or share your faith and do the very best you can to do that, I want you to leave your finger up. If you can't, put it down. I'm looking. Everybody's looking at you. Every head bowed and every eye closed. What is it going to take? What is it going to take for us to get serious about loving people and sharing our faith? See, that's the job of the church. Not to condemn people who don't live like us. Not to look down our noses if they partake of the world. But to just love them where they are. But know that God loves them enough to not leave them there. Thank you for joining us today at Northridge Church. We hope today's message inspired you in your walk with God. We hope you take your next step by connecting with us online at northridgethomaston.com.